In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash happening and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash happening. Thanks for your help. There was an actual government conspiracy, like a genuine and actual one, by the CIA to suppress people's belief in UFOs. Not only that, this is in the actual report of this meeting. Yes. <laughs> come out much later, they say that they want to infiltrate and monitor UFO groups, civilian UFO groups that had started to spring up. So there really is some kernel of seriousness to the conspiracy mongering here, especially vis-a-vis the government. Hello, and welcome to Why Is This Happening with me, your host, Chris Hayes. You know how there are things that float at the periphery of your news awareness? Like you you see a story and you have to make this kind of triage, this informational triage decision about like, all right, I'm going to not invest in that one. I'm going to declare bankruptcy on that story. And I, because of my job, I don't do that a lot. I end up reading a lot of about a lot of things and trying to kind of cram as much information into my brain as possible. But, you know, there will be stories where I, I will sort of float past the periphery. Well, one story like that, that was happening, I think, during a very intensely news-fraught period in all our lives, which is basically 2020 and, you know, COVID and the election and all that, was the story of the Pentagon and UFOs. And it actually extends previous to that. There had been these disclosures of, in a literal sense, unidentified flying objects, right? Things that I think Navy pilots had encountered in the skies that they didn't know what they were, they couldn't quite understand what their propulsion system was, how they were making the maneuvers they were making. There were a series of New York Times articles with like very kind of like mind-blowing headlines, like, you know, the Navy Pentagon discloses heretofore classified UFO footage. (laughs) It's like a video comes out of a Navy pilot being like, what is that? (laughs) You're like, well, what is that? But I just, it was this story that was sort of happening in the background, and I was just like, I don't know, maybe maybe like while we're all focused on COVID and Donald Trump and like trying to get through this pandemic and like, you know, keep American democracy alive, like it turns out aliens are real, they've been visiting us, and it just got, it just got disclosed and everyone was just too busy uh, with other stuff to figure it out. And then, you know, as we came out of that sort of dark period, particularly the the darkness of like COVID winter, COVID slash insurrection winter, which is a really uh, intense and overwhelming period, I started to kind of think to myself, like, I should stop triaging in this and invest a little bit. And so I started reading around to be like, how do I make sense of what appears to be a series of government disclosures by serious people and interviews given by serious people that seem to acknowledge that there are a parts of the U.S. government that monitor, again, unidentified flying objects. They have another acronym in the Pentagon, I think UAP. I forget what it stands for off the top of my head. And that serious people say on the record things like, we don't know what they are and they're not ours. And well, what the hell do we do with that? And, you know, obviously there's a long, robust 
uh, history of people talking about UFOs, alleging they exist, alleging vast cover-ups of their existence, alleging that we've already made contact with them. I think those people have tended to be largely viewed as cranks in the mainstream, but also penetrating mainstream culture, I guess is the way I would say it, right? The fantasy of UFOs, I mean, an incredible standby in, in cultural production. And so the piece that I read that like set my thinking straightest on this is this piece that appeared in The New Yorker in April by Gideon Lewis Krauss. It's called How the Pentagon Started Taking UFOs Seriously. And I had been wanting to have a discussion about UFOs to just sort of sort through like, okay, what do we know? What has been disclosed? What do we think hasn't been disclosed? And what does it all add up to in terms of what we are actually talking about here? And Gideon was uh, nice enough to come to the program on All In, the, the TV show I host at 8 p.m. weeknights on MSNBC. But we only got to talk for five minutes, and so I wanted to get him back here on WithPod. So uh, Gideon Lewis Krauss, great to have you in the program. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Let me start first with just, you, you're a writer who writes about a lot of different things, and I'm curious how you got into this topic. Well, I had just started at The New Yorker last spring, and my editor had said, oh, well, we've known you were coming for a while, so there have been a few different ideas that we've flagged as maybe something that would capture your interest. And most of them were you know, very well-developed ideas with 100 links attached to them. And then one of them was just two sentences that was like, is it time to put somebody on the question of like what the hell is going on with UFOs? And I said... Literally exactly my thought process. <laughs> yeah. And I said to her, you know, look, I just started here. Uh, we were a month and a half into the pandemic. It was an election year. And I said, I'm not, I'm not sure right now is the time to do this story. Let me do some, you know, more normal things first and let's reconsider this in the fall. And then she came back to me around the election time and she said, you know, there's, there's real interest here in, in you're doing this piece. And I said, well, um, you know, I think at this point, given that that whenever this will come out, it'll be like well past the election and and hopefully like at an inflection point in, in the pandemic. And at that point, you know, people are going to be ready to read about something else. You know, by then I was so sick of, of reading about just the election and the pandemic. And I thought that actually this has tremendous appeal because you couldn't possibly get farther away from a, you know, what I thought was a regular news cycle than writing about UFOs. Of course, kind of little did I know what this would end up being like. But for me, it was the perfect counter-programming piece. And I said, okay, well, you know, before I take this on, let me figure out if it's possible to take this seriously. Because I said, I, I don't want to do a story that's just like fish in a barrel, like making fun of the UFO nuts. I want to do this if I can find a way to take it seriously. And I, I think there are real, real issues involved besides the kind of just like purely, you know, voyeuristic ones or sensational ones. And so I read this book, you know, I basically just Googled like, what are the legitimate books about UFOs? And, and the one that came up most often was this book by a longtime investigative journalist named Leslie Kane. And I read her book and I thought like, oh, actually, like I, you know, for one thing, I, I knew nothing about the long history of the American government and the American public's relationship to UFOs. And so like that sees my imagination is that there's this kind of like forgotten stretch of history where UFOs were a, a major part of the public conversation and like weren't relegated to the fringes. And also as I you know, read Leslie's book and then started to look into it, I thought like, oh, you know, actually there's, there's evidence that something weird has been going on here. And like, who knows what it is 
that is weird, but like there's there's something here, something that has to do with perception or something that has to do with taboo. And at, at the very minimum, I think that there's a story that says this was a part of the public conversation. And then for various reasons involving, you know, the government's response, this was really shut down and was like, if there's any truth to the conspiratorial thinking about this, that actually there was like an active movement to make this a fringe subject that worked and that nobody then talked about it in serious circles for 50 years. And then all of a sudden there's one New York Times story and that makes it a, a reputable thing to talk about again. So I thought at the very least there's a story about the, the career of this taboo. And that was kind mm-hmm. of how I got involved in it. That's well stated on the arc of it, the career of this taboo. So let's talk about the career of this taboo. Let's go back to when do people start talking about UFOs? So it depends how far back you go because there are UFO people who say like, well, you can look in the Bible and like when Ezekiel has these visions of wheels within wheels in the sky, like that wasn't God speaking to Ezekiel, that was just a spaceship. And like this actually was a record of a UFO from 3,000 years ago. And then you have other people who have like really combed back through like folkloric literature and say like, well, there's evidence of UFOs visiting feudal Japan. But in America, you get this wave of sightings of mysterious airships in uh, 1895 and 1896. And the reason I bring this up, it, it obviously doesn't seem wholly relevant to today's conversation, but what's interesting about it is that it sets a, a certain kind of pattern for UFOs, which is that technologically, they're always just out of our reach. So even just like a decade before we had viable you know, dirigible technology, there were people spotting these airships. And so they're, they're mm, always mm-hmm. a little bit beyond <laughs> where we are. There's always sl- something slightly aspirational about them. This, this reminds me of the, um, there's a pre-Socratic Greek philosopher who has a line about like, if the lions had gods, they would look like lions. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> it's yeah. like there's a little, it sounds like there's a little bit of a thing like that there. Oh, for sure. And so then, <laughs> uh, and actually there's, you know, to go back and read about these airship sightings, there are all kinds of like funny stuff about like the airships, like stopping, you know, mechanics getting out to fix them. And, it, you know, so it was something that was like just faintly plausible, like just faintly on, on the conceivable horizon uh, or just past that horizon. And so, but then you have service members returning from the war um, and much, much later in the story, Ted Stevens' experience in the war plays a role in this. And these servicemen had seen what they called Foo Fighters, which were like mysterious balls of fire following their planes. And at, at first it, they thought that, oh, maybe this was some Axis technology. And then it turns out that actually Axis airmen were seeing this too. Hmm. But what really kicks it off here is that in the summer of 1947, there's a private aviator named Kenneth Arnold who's flying near Mount Rainier. And he spots this wave of nine undulating disks, which actually he described as having more of like a boomerang shape or the shape of a tailless manta ray. But it gets picked up in the press in a, I think it was an AP wire headline, calls them flying saucers. And then this becomes a meme that really sticks. Like people are captivated by this idea of flying saucers. And then like, then just like the floodgates open and the Air Force starts fielding hundreds of reports of these flying saucers over the rest of 1947. And it's in the fall of 1947 that somebody inside the Air Force basically says like, okay, now we really have to take this seriously. That these are, the famous line is that these are not fictitious things, that they're something real and we have to take them seriously, especially if they maybe represent some 
great leap forward in Soviet technology that we should right. be worried about. Right. And like this, when I think of like the peak UFO years um, or the, you know, they're, they're intimately tied to my conception of the Cold War, of the arms race, of the birth and dawn of the nuclear age, and humans reckoning with the fact that we had just invented a technology that could destroy human life on the planet. And like, I feel like the story that I was maybe either taught explicitly or just, you know, in my casual reading came away with is that like, clearly this was a collective mass delusion that was like an emanation of cultural fear and paranoia about born of the Cold War. Right. Like that was that was basically the story, I think, as I understood it. Oh, I I mean, absolutely. And you think of these kind of like lurid 50s paperbacks that play into those anxieties. And, you know, some of it was really explicit. I mean, like the first kind of alien encounter stories you have from the 1950s, you have people saying like, oh, this kindly race of Nordic looking Venusians came to visit me. And like, they just stressed that they're really worried about um, our atomic tests and that, Mm -hmm. you know, we're going to destroy this planet and we're going to pollute the solar system with, with our fallout. And so like, can we cut it out with the, with the nuclear weapons and nuclear tests? So like some of that, it's very easy to, to, to draw that line. But actually like part of my feeling with this story is that so much of this has sort of been looked at through this, anthropological lens and I thought like well there there are people who take this seriously enough that I don't want to do the thing where you go and and say like let me explain to you like why your serious belief is actually a metaphor for something because that's just been done a lot and I think often in like not particularly perspicuous or interesting ways so I thought like let's let's like try to skip that like what is this a metaphor for or like at least try to apply that in interesting ways rather than just as like a knee jerk let's explain away these beliefs as just you know a function of particular cultural anxieties although like obviously it's obvious that those connections are there right I mean I guess that the the question at an epistemic level right is like that explanation is always only like done or sort of uninteresting if there's nothing to it. Yeah. I mean, right? Like, (laughs) it's like, it's all, you can't, I guess my point is that we can't escape the first order substantive epistemic question, which is like, what are we talking about? So let's go back to 47, right? So clearly people are talking about this. It, It enters a culture. The Air Force is like, we should take this seriously. What happens next? So basically from especially in those early years from 47 to let's say 53, there's kind of this seesawing that happens inside the government where there's a cohort of people who really take this seriously, especially the possibility that these could be what they called interplanetary at the time because they couldn't even conceive of something from outside the solar system. So you have a cohort of people who suspect that this might be the explanation. Then you have a a group of people who think that that's absolutely ridiculous. It can't possibly be extraterrestrial because that's, you know simply impossible. And like you you kind of have like each of these camps has like alternating moments of of supremacy um, where like for a while nothing will happen and it'll seem like the let's not take this seriously people will will gain the upper hand. And then 
just weird things keep happening. So like for a while, it seems like they're taking it really, really seriously. And then like they start to dismiss it. And then there's like this famous case of a Eastern Airlines DC-3 in 1948, where, you know, two pilots see it from the air and people see it from the ground. And it's like their first close up experience with one. And then all of a sudden, like the, the tables are turned internally. And like now the... UFOs are genuinely, you know, an important mystery. People gain the upper hand. So it kind of goes back and forth like this until 1952. And 1952, you have this flap of UFOs that violate airspace over the White House. And this becomes a major deal. It's covered in the Times, covered in the Washington Post, uh, like very seriously. I mean, in ways that feel kind of like shocking to go back and, and read these stories. And... And this is something that, like, that, that, like, air traffic controllers or radar picks up. Yeah, radar, radar picked these up. And in fact, the, initially the Air Force denied that they'd done anything, but later it turned out that they had, in fact, scrambled jets to try to intercept these. Hmm. And there's this really famous press conference in July of 1952. It's the single biggest press conference since the end of the war, in which a major general from the Army gets up and says, you know, we, we don't really know what's going on. Uh, he says that we're not really sure what these are. And despite our best efforts to dismiss them, that there's a certain percentage of these reports are from credible people who report seeing incredible things. And that's kind of the tenor of the conversation for a long time, which is that like you can try to wave it away, but then you just have this like residue of, you know, even if you can explain 95% of the cases all the time, you have this like stubborn residue of 5% of the cases where they're perfectly credible people reporting having seen incredible things. Right. Um, so that becomes like the nod of this. But then in, in, in 1953, the CIA convenes a panel for four days that meets and says, like, you know, we have a real problem here. And the problem is not that we're being visited by UFOs. The problem is that actually we're being inundated with too many UFO reports. <laughs> so we really have to put the lid on this. We have to educate the public. We have to train train and debunk is the phrase that comes out of this. Wow. Uh, we have to enlist the mass media to ridicule this because we can't just have like, we can't have so much noise in our in our you know, informational environment with like that. We genuinely need to be worried about Cold War threats. So we can't be dealing with people, nutty people <laughs> tying up our lines with having every seen, Tom, Dick and Harry calling Langley to say that, like, there's a flying saucer in their backyard. Exactly. And then that works. And and I mean, it takes a while, but and then you still and that was I just want to just to hang a lantern on that for a second. This came through in your piece. It's like there was an actual government conspiracy, like a genuine and actual one by the CIA to suppress people's belief in UFOs. Not only that, this is in the actual report of this meeting, yes. which has come out much later. They say that they want to infiltrate and monitor UFO groups, civilian UFO groups that had started to spring up. So there really is some kernel of seriousness to the conspiracy mongering here, especially vis-a-vis right. -vis the government. Right. And basically, according to your article, like that this this sort of taboo enforcement and suppression really works. It takes a little while and then you, you have dissenting opinions. You have Vice Admiral Helen Cotter, who was the first head of the CIA. He tells the New York Times in 1960 that 
the government is kind of ridiculing this in public, but behind the scenes, people are very soberly concerned about that. And you like you always have people popping up to say these things. You know, people were so surprised when all of a sudden in the last year you have this parade of of former officials coming out and saying like, oh, there's something here. But that's actually like pretty close to the historical norm. I mean, that kind of thing was was true in the in the 50s and 60s. It what was weird was that when it wasn't true. I mean, it was weird when, you know, Dennis Kucinich gets laughed out of the 2008 primary because he saw a UFO at Shirley MacLaine's house. Now, maybe the problem was Shirley MacLaine's house and not the UFO, but, you know, for a long time, it, it wouldn't have been that weird. For I mean, President Carter saw a UFO outside a Lions Club meeting in 1969. Apparently, Reagan saw a UFO. So what do we know about what happens inside the government in monitoring for unidentified flying objects, things that are appearing in the sky that we can't figure out what they are. So eventually, and we don't have to spend too long on this history, there are these congressional hearings in 1966, and they decide that they're going to assign a commission and an independent outside body of scientists to look into this UFO subject and, you know, figure out whether there's really anything there. And in the fall of 1968, they complete this report and the report's over a thousand pages long and it comes out and it has a summary that says like, there's really nothing to see here. And like, there's no scientific value. We should not let our scientists keep studying this. This should be relegated to science fiction. But then you read the actual report. I mean, it seems like the, the the guy who led this report was barely familiar with what was in the report because then, you know, inside the report of the 90 cases they examined, like 30% of them were still unresolved. Right. But the headline of this is like, UFOs are ridiculous. And that kind of licenses the media and, and officials to, to poo-poo it when it comes up again. But then there's all kinds of evidence after that, that even though the government has officially said we're not interested, that sure, they were still continuing to keep track of weird stuff that they saw in the air without talking about it publicly and seemingly without coming to any kind of conclusion. So basically, the constants here are people see stuff in the sky, the government is constantly monitoring stuff in the sky and has either through instrumentation or its own pilots picking up stuff in the sky, which I think is you know, to me is a, a higher level of, of credibility. People see stuff all the time, but like, you know, if something's showing up on an instrument and, and you've got you've got it on, on fairly sophisticated diagnostic tools that are literally designed to pick up other flying things, right? Like it's much harder to dismiss as like people have visions or apparitions, right? So that's happening, right? Right. And then this sort of turn happens that you kind of document the piece. And I think it, Part of it goes back to Leslie Kane. I mean, you sort of make the case that, like, it reemerges from taboo at some point. How and why? Well, let me actually, there are two other things I wanted to say before we moved on that just follow from what you said. One is that, and I think this point gets lost a lot of the time, that there's there definitely was a kind of weird class issue involved here, where the kinds of people who tended to report seeing UFOs all along were were first responder types. I mean, it was pilots and it was policemen and it was firefighters. And, you know, these were always described as like salt of the earth, pillar of their community people. And the people doing the dismissing were often like the head of the Hayden Planetarium and like, you know, a famous uh, astronomer at Harvard. So one of the themes here of this that comes, you know, in and out of the story are scientists who 
dismiss firsthand observations by this kind of like pilot policeman cohort. The other thing I was going to say that I think is coming to the fore now is that to some extent, one way to look at the UFO issue is as a kind of referendum on on government competence, that the real conspiratorialists, like they have a bedrock belief in like massive government competence throughout Mm -hmm. them. Like the government knew what was going on and the government has been able to keep like what would obviously be like the single greatest secret in human history for 70 years. Uh, And like that is a, that is an extremely competent organization that could do those things. Just to be clear, that's the maximalist position of like, there are extraterrestrials that unidentified flying objects are from alien other life forces outside human life on the planet, and that we've made contact with them, basically. Like, that's the right. the maximalist conspiracy theories. Like, all of that has happened. It's all been kept under wraps by a government that doesn't want us to know. Right. And as far as the maximal, maximalism goes, there's also something to be said that there's there's kind of a Mott and Bailey argument here, um, or rather there are like stronger and weaker versions of this that are used interchangeably, where a lot of people say, look, we're, you know, we're not saying these are aliens. We're just saying that these are unidentified things in the sky. Like they could be drones, or they could be weird weather phenomena. We, we just have to like, in, you know, emphasize the unidentified part of unidentified flying objects and not rush to any hasty conclusions. But then of course, most of those people like still fundamentally believe that these are alien ships. <laughs> right, right. This is, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying that these are on the same, like the same planes, but that mode of argumentation was, I re- reminded of arguing with like 9-11 truthers. Yeah. It was like the sort of smart ones would be like, look, I'm not saying it's an inside job. I'm just saying that like, we don't understand why Tower 7 right. came down really. And like, if you look at the demolition data, blah, blah, blah. But then it was also like, they definitely thought yeah. it was an inside job. Yeah. <laughs> they just, they were just, this was their, essentially, this was a rhetorical pose they were adopting to talk to normies. Right. But the belief they had was like the maximal conspiratorial belief. Yes, definitely, absolutely. So, okay, you sort of document this kind of subculture that is, again, is, is you know, obviously there's enormous subculture. There's a book, Communion, that came yeah. out. I remember my dad reading yeah, it. Like, it was a big bestseller. It was a bestseller. And that was like, again, that's like total maximalist, right? That was that was people who report being abducted by aliens and they all looked the same ways and they had the big eyes and they went on the spaceship and they did experiments to them. And, you know, this belief persists and persists and persists, although it it sort of moves, it, it oscillates in and out of the mainstream in different ways. Right. What role does Leslie Kane play in the sort of latest chapter in this oscillating story? Well, so basically what you have is a relatively small cohort of people all in the orbit of this guy, Robert Bigelow, who is a Nevada cut rate real estate magnate and aerospace entrepreneur who's been interested in this stuff since his childhood and has been studying this stuff since the 90s. And he had started this organization in the mid-90s to look into UFOs and cattle mutilation and other paranormal phenomena. And he gets linked up with people who have been doing kind of fringe government studies for a long time. People have been looking into remote viewing, which is like ESP at a distance. The CIA had funded a project called Project Stargate, in the 70s and 80s to look into this. And so all these people kind of cluster around Bigelow in the 90s. And then it's really, he shuts this this institute down in 2004, but it's the same group of people who are continually working on this stuff. And it's a relatively small group of people. 
And Leslie Kane starts writing about UFOs in 1999. She gets this French report written by a bunch of retired generals who say, like, there's really something here and we have to take the extraterrestrial hypothesis seriously. And she then gets linked up with some of these people who had been involved in these Bigelow efforts for a long time. And then it's Bob Bigelow who arranges a meeting between this DIA scientist and Harry Reid in 2007. And then this DIA scientist goes and visits this ranch in Utah that Bigelow owns where like, there are werewolves that are impervious to gunshots and floating orbs and all kinds of strange paranormal things going on there. And eventually the upshot of all of this is Harry Reid gets together with Ted Stevens and, and Daniel Inouye and together they fund this black money program to contract out Bigelow's, a subsidiary of Bigelow's aerospace company to look into this stuff. Right. So like basically this sort of circle of people, say eccentrics, you know, like a wealthy eccentric who's into this, manages to get his way close enough to government to get Harry Reid and Inouye and Stevens to actually pipe government money into investigating this. Yeah, I mean, not a huge amount of government money. Um, you know, it's a rounding error in the defense budget, but it's, of still, it's still money. And then what happens is you get this, this guy, Lou Elizondo, who's a longtime counterintelligence guy who is brought in under like somewhat murky circumstances, but basically like cleans up. He's brought in in 2010 and he kind of cleans up the program so that it's no longer like this contractor looking into werewolves and goblins and UFOs on this Utah ranch. Now it's like, let's look at military encounters. Let's look at like what we're hearing from our Navy pilots. Let's, you know, try to get information from NORAD and and stuff like that. So it, it becomes... Slightly, it becomes more serious in in 2010, but then the funding's not renewed, and he's just doing this as a bootstrapped part of his own portfolio as a kind of like in-house UFO freelancer. But he can't get any attention. You know, he tries to brief General Mattis several times. He gets turned down by his underlings, who basically say like we have more important stuff going on, and they're also worried about the taint. You know, they don't they don't ever want somebody to be able to say General Mattis took a briefing on UFOs. And, you know, by all accounts, Mattis looks at this as, as an annoyance. And then Elizondo resigns publicly. He writes this letter saying, like, you know, this is something that the government needs to take seriously and you're not devoting any resources to it and you're not paying attention. He resigns in the fall of 2017. And one of the last things he does before he leaves is that he secures the public release of these three videos. Now, there's, like, a, a lot of confusion and misconception and kind of, like, myth that has been embroidered to these videos, but these videos were never classified. It's somewhat unclear exactly how they were viewed. When he gets them cleared for public release, he describes them as drones, basically. Drones or balloons. And then he, you know, the, again, the details of this are a little bit murky, but he basically gives them to this guy, Chris Mellon, who had been in a former assistant undersecretary of defense for intelligence. And then Mellon brings Leslie Kane into this and Kane meets with, with Elizondo. And at this point, they, they essentially say, if you can get this into the Times, you can have these videos. And then by December of 2017, this Times story comes out, it has two of the videos and overnight, the public conversation about UFOs is different. Okay, but here's the thing that kept, coming up to me. Like, a reportorial experience, a journalist experience that I've had starting very early is meeting people who have genuine serious credentials, particularly who've worked in the national security apparatus or national security state for all kinds of ways. I mean, you know, retired spooks and 
you know, who you're like, oh, this is a serious person. They have this very serious credential. And then who turn out to be like completely batshit nuts. Yeah. And this happens all that, like, you learn this pretty early on. I mean, we, you know, General Flynn is yeah. like a great example, right? Like, that guy is like— He's, he's everybody's first example of this, yeah. As, as decorated as it gets, right? Yeah. Like, and but, but I've had that experience, I'm sure you have too, in your reporting career. I remember meeting with, like, ex-CIA guys, reporting on a story, and then, like, 30 minutes in, I'm like, Whoa, wait, what? Like, oh, oh, you're delusional. Yeah. <laughs> like, you, like, all by which to say, like, Serious credentials are by no means mutually exclusive with with holding crank, strange, strange beliefs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But not even I'm, strange is a gentle and diplomatic way of saying it. Like wrong beliefs. Like Michael Flynn believes the election was stolen, and like maybe Italian satellites hacked Dominion machine. You know what I mean? Right, like, right, right. And so my point just being that here that like one of the stories here, and and to me what makes this terrain fascinating from again from an epistemic perspective is you've got a bunch of people who are credentialed, serious people taking this seriously. But I guess my point is just ipso facto, that doesn't mean it's serious. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. I mean, I, I I would hope that that would be one of the clear implications of, of my story. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Like, there, like, part of this does have to do with the fantasy that, like, somehow the, like, senior people in Washington have, like, a more rigorous epistemic process than the rest of us do, which clearly is not true. So wait, let's go back to the videos. Like, what are the videos? What do we know about them and what don't we know? Because I I was like everyone else in 2017 when that's when the story came out in 2017. Is that right? Yeah, December 2017. Right. So I was in the same boat as everyone else. Like, whoa, what the hell? So, I mean, it's it's very hard at this point to take these videos in isolation. But when you take these videos in isolation, you know, I guess all three of them are sort of different. The, the most impressive one or the most impressive two of the three are the ones where you hear the pilots reacting in real time, where the pilots are like, right. wait, what the hell is going on? I mean, that's really striking. And in one of them, you hear the pilot say, like, look at the SA, meaning look at the situational awareness, where he says, like, there's a whole fleet of them and they're flying in a formation. But there's absolutely nothing dispositive or categorical can be said from these videos alone. I mean, like, there are cases that these could be a, a form of instrumental glitch in the infrared. There's this um, well-known debunker who I think is one of the more uh, reasonable and like kind of less excitable debunkers. Some of these people are, get really disproportionately worked up about this in a way where you think, like, oh, clearly they have some kind of strange personal investment in this. But this guy, Mick West, has a bunch of videos showing, like, well, he thinks one of them is just a passenger plane, he thinks one of them is engine glare, and one, the other one could be a balloon. And, like... He will freely say that the way you come to these conclusions is you basically ignore all the rest of the evidence. You ignore all of the pilot testimony. You ignore the radar returns. But just looking at these videos, there's no clear sign of what is being looked at. Because they've, they've been delivered to us outside of any kind of context other than, like, these are Navy UFO videos. Right. So you know, it's, it, it's hard to say anything about, like, that piece of evidence in isolation. So there's a report that's going to come out that you mentioned, and there's been some more reporting in the New York Times, and I want to talk about what the latest Times reporting is and what that report is right as we take this quick break. Jen Psaki. Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional? Rachel Maddow. If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? Mondays, back to back. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means? 
Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. So the Times reporting in 2017 totally alters people's awareness. Certainly for me, it did. And then recently, there's more Times reporting. Yeah, not by Leslie Kane, actually, by actual national security staffers, not not freelancers. And the Times reporting has said that like this report's going to look at 120 incidents over, I don't know, the past 20 years, and that so far the headline leak has been... They're going to come out and say, like, we're not sure what these are, but they're not ours. And that's been the only thing that's, that's right. come out so far, at least from, you know, mainstream news organizations. Right. I mean, this is where we get into, like, reasoning and probability, right? So let's yeah. take a face value that, like, there's some suite of, there's some category of instances of quite literally unidentified flying objects that military has, some record internally. That's pilot eyewitness, that's instrumentation, all this stuff. Then the question becomes, well, what are ways we could explain them that are not alien visitations or spaceships? Right. One hypothesis is, because the U.S. government has so many sort of compartmentalizations of secrecy, that this was something that we ourselves were testing, that the pilots encountering weren't read into, and so as to not spoil the secret, the government couldn't come out and say, oh, no, 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 that's actually our super advanced drone or whatever, because the whole point was that that was supposed to be secret from everyone, right? Or if you want to, like, go further into the kind of, like, psyops interpretation, like, this is their way of advertising, like, oh, we do have something really advanced, and we're going to talk about it as if they're UFOs, but, like, really, this is our just, like, winking at our adversaries, saying, like, you know, we have stuff that, like, defies the laws of physics as we understand them. Right, that we want, like, the Chinese to know. know. Yeah, exactly. Right, and that this is an elaborate way of letting them know through this channel. (laughs) Right. Okay. You're laughing because you don't think that's true. No, I don't think that's true. Uh, I mean, because that's another competence question, right? Exactly. Oh, yeah, exactly. Right. That I I would tend to side with that, although the other idea of, like, we're experimenting with stuff that the left arm doesn't know about the right arm and then that has to be kept secret, that seems less implausible to me and more possible. Well, maybe, especially because there, you know, if you look at the locations of where the, you know, this infamous Tic Tac was seen off the coast of Baja, like, yeah, there are training ranges around there. There's all st- all kinds of stuff going on down there. It's possible that maybe this was that case of, you know, um, uh, pilots not being read in. But especially the sightings on the East Coast where you have these hazard reports being filed because pilots almost... T- 
crashed into things. Like that seems pretty unlikely that you've got a guy like, you know, you've got people out there flying $100 million planes and like you have mysterious things in the sky that you didn't tell them about. Like that just seems kind of foolhardy. And, you know, uh, there's been a bunch of reporting where like uh, this guy, Tim McMillan, who does great stuff for the debrief has interviewed senior people who have basically said, can you like, you cannot even imagine the red tape involved if I wanted to like test out some state-of-the-art technology like in a, you know, with (laughs) live pilots in a training range. (laughs) Right. Yeah, right, right. Particularly if it's like the most cutting edge technology that like the American government has. Yes, exactly. Right? Like if it's like the most expensive cutting edge technology the American government has, just like run, like, yeah, let's take it for a joyride like off the coast of Maine is like probably not going to happen. Right, right. Although, I mean, again, you know, like, and what makes all of this so messy and also like kind of fun to talk about is that like, it does implicate all sorts of things. You know, when the government was testing the U-2 spy plane and the SR-71 Blackbird and like these top secret projects from the 60s, they were delighted when people thought they were UFOs because that helped keep them secret for longer. So like they're actually, there's a history of the government doing exactly that. So then you think like, well, why are they not doing that now, but then it, it you know, obviously right. things are <laughs> a little different now for all sorts of reasons, but. Well, the report that's going to be issued, which which may be actually between us conversing and you hearing uh, this podcast, it's, it's one possibility, it's supposed to be issued in June, and we're, we're recording this uh, in the, the third week of June. One of the top line leaks, right, that we've got is that, like, they're going to say, Okay, it's th- this stuff isn't ours. Whatever the, the the stuff that we're seeing, it's not it's not ours, and it's not like some secret thing that's ours. But then again, that just prompts the question of like, well, if they were lying about it the first time, like they're not going to come out and be like, okay, you got us. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. point is that like again, it, this all comes down to like, well, who do you believe, and what do you think yeah. is the most likely? Because there's no like, well, you have to. It's like you know. The, <laughs> There's no version of the the kids myth that like if you ask a cop if they're a cop they have to tell you you're a cop. Right. Like exactly. there's 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 no yeah. version of that for like you have to tell us if this is real or not. Right. Right. But then I'm just left saying like, okay, so there's stuff that we encounter that we can't explain that is not that likely in the main when you when you take in all of the sort of factors between what you describe as the red tape and the you know the fact that the government's not going to issue this report. Like, let's say, leaning towards these not being some top-secret program that we're encountering among our own pilots. Then I guess the next question is, like, is it some other, you know, rival powers technology? And then, I mean, I think the the question that has to enter into all this, right, is, like, the probabilistic question that you encounter with any theory of the unknown. And just to take it back to 9-11, like, in the end, it's like, which is more likely? Like this, you know, <laughs> that the government planned this entire thing and like pulled it off with like no whistleblower <laughs> inside it to like yeah. murder 3,000 of its own citizens or like the actual story that we were told is correct. And here it's like, which is more likely that there's some weird Chinese drone or some combination of misperceptions and instrumentation failures or that like, an alien life force that would we know would have to be from several light years away, right? Yeah. Like, at the least, has figured out a level of technology way past what we can really conceive to traverse those light years and come here and, like, fly around right. in our skies. I mean, yeah, the... the- <laughs> 
Um, I feel like you're being very careful. <laughs> well, I'm being careful in part because I, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be holy. Dismissive. I feel like I'm talking to you about like Israel, Palestine, or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, like what, what are you scared of? Oh no, no, no! I'm not, I'm not scared of anything. I, 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 I just want to be careful because it, it is hard to say, like. It's hard to say anything with total certainty about this stuff. Right. I right, mean, because okay, like right. as as preposterous as some of these ideas seem, like when you try to like the fun thing about doing this, and the reason why, I mean, one of the ways you can explain the fact that so many of these people have like come on board in this way is that it really doesn't take much to get somebody to want to believe this. Like you just have to pass mm-hmm. like the bare minimal threshold of plausibility for people to be like, okay, yeah, I'm on board with that. Because it's like it's a fun thing to think about for all sorts of reasons. And like right. You know, it feels it like reopens a sense of like broad cosmic wonder about all the things that we don't know and what right. the universe might be like in, in ways we can't imagine. And so when you think like, okay, humans in modern form have been around for a couple hundred thousand years or a couple million yep. years. And we've had basically like one century of technological, of real technological development. And when you imagine like the scale of the existence of the universe, there's nothing to say that there couldn't be civilizations that are a billion years ahead of us. And who knows what those civilizations would be doing or how they right. would feel about us or how they would move around. So, right. and like, there's nothing implausible about that. No, that's correct. No, I mean, this is all probabilistic reasoning on a cosmic scale that's hard to draw hard conclusions from. I mean, I think I've been convinced by the probabilistic reasoning that there's life out there as just a sheer brute statistical reality. Yeah. (laughs) I think I've also been, I've tended to think that along the same lines of the sort of sheer brute probabilistic reality that the kind of concatenation of probability of them being out there being close enough to traverse in any meaningful sense and having the technology to do that ends up in a probability that's like considerably slimmer. Sure. Than, yes. Um, I mean, actually, that's like just a that's a mathematical tautology. Like that, it must be the case, right? Yeah. That that's a slimmer probability because it's you know uh, you're multiplying different probabilities. So I, I I guess where I'm at is just like in the end we end up in the same probabilistic reasoning. It's almost like we're in the same place we would be without the evidence. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of maddening. I mean, but I'm sorry, it's fun, but it's also like, right, like in some ways the biggest questions here aren't the questions about the evidence. They're the, they're, they're the same big probabilistic questions about like the size of the cosmos and how life develops. Well, and but then also you kind of do have this additional problem introduced by the evidence, which is, you know, there have been thousands of credible-seeming reports of these over the years. So what do you do with the fact that there seems, for at least from one point of view, there seems to be an enormous amount of evidence? Like, does that mean that, like, we're being visited all the time? Like, that's where you end up with these crazy kind of, like, Earth zoo hypotheses, where, like, we're just being visited by families, you know, alien families on vacation to point at us and laugh <laughs> or whatever. I mean, like, in, in a way, there the, the evidence would be stronger if there were, like, one really big case, like, that, you know, you could think, like, oh, okay, a spaceship made its way here and and one time. But, like, how do you explain, how do you explain all the different shapes that are seen, for example? Like, so in a strange way, there's there's almost too much evidence. Like, there's so much evidence that it causes it to feel less plausible. Right, and I guess what you're saying there is, if I understand you, is that, like, you're zooming in on the, like, 
I think sometimes you hear the theory of like, how likely would it be that this incredibly advanced society of life out there comes up with the technology to sustainably traverse multiple light years, yeah. um, only to like come buzz around our skies? Right. And then the counter to that is like, well, we don't know that they're just buzzing around our skies. <laughs> I guess yeah. is the answer, right? Yeah. I mean, and that that's why I kept having this experience where I would talk to these people who seemed like otherwise totally lucid and prudent, you know, for the first half hour of our conversation where they'd be saying like, oh no, we just have to listen to these military pilots and take them seriously. And, you know, there's radar evidence and all this stuff. And then by hour two of the conversation, it's like, well, the aliens have been living under the, the ocean floor for millions of years. And they're the ones who genetically engineered primates to become humans. And they, you know, <laughs> taught accounting to the Sumerians or whatever. Like that's, that's, that's why people end up going there because like you need to try to figure that out somehow. But I also think, you know, like there's a certain kind of arc that people have. In 2017, this interstellar object passed through our solar system that was picked up by a new telescope and a recent telescope in Hawaii or telescopic array. And we picked up this interstellar object and it had these various like anomalous properties. It had like weird, you know, it was rotating in a weird way and like didn't show any signs of off-gassing that a comet would have. But then also when it went around the sun, it clearly like picked up some additional acceleration that wasn't merely just from the sun's gravity. So there were all these weird things about this object that longtime head of uh, astrophysics at Harvard is this guy Avi Loeb and he concludes that like this very well could have been a light sail that was either the like detritus of some lost alien civilization or like a, some kind of probe. And he had a book that was, came out in January talking about this. And uh, I mean, for him, it's just a story about like scientific hubris that like the scientific community has gotten too cautious and too insular and too afraid to say crazy things. And that like, this should actually be a sign that that scientists should be more imaginative. But I talked to him in December and we talked a lot about his Oumuamua ideas. But when I brought up UFOs, he was like, oh, that's that's frankly ridiculous. <laughs> and like he, you know, refused to kind of have any truck with it at all. But then, you know, the book comes out and like he in in March or April, he goes on Rogan to talk about it. And I mean, he had to have known that Rogan was going to ask him about UFO stuff. And of course, Rogan does. And he, at that point, he says like, well, really, it's something that like, like, I don't know that much about it, but like scientists should really look into this. Like scientists should look at this anomalous data. Like it shouldn't be, you know, held up by the military. And then just this week, he has a Scientific American editorial where he's like, well, these UFOs we've been seeing actually like could have been somehow related to Oumuamua, the interstellar object. And maybe they were planting probes in our atmosphere to help guide Oumuamua. So like, the, the really cynical interpretation here is like, oh, this guy just wanted to get on the UFO train. Right. Um, which I, I highly doubt from having talked to him. I mean, like he's had a long, illustrious scientific career. I doubt that he thinks like, oh, at, you know, tail end of my career, I need to just like get some of this reflected UFO attention. Or it's that once you start thinking about this stuff, that there is something like, you know, it, it burrows deep somehow. And like you just right. talk yourself into the increasing plausibility as you go along. Gideon Lewis Krauss is a staff writer at The New Yorker. The piece that we're discussing is called How the Pentagon Started Taking UFOs Seriously. You can find it online. It was published April 30th. I don't know where I ended up if I've talked myself into it or not, but that was a lot of fun, Gideon. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Chris.
Once again, great thanks to Gideon Lewis Krauss. Um, you should definitely check out that story, how the Pentagon started taking UFOs seriously in The New Yorker. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the UFO situation, um, the probability that they visit us or we're just in the zoo without knowing it. Tweet us with the hashtag withpod, email withpod at gmail.com. Why is this happening? It's presented by MSNBC and NBC News, produced by the All In team and featured music by Eddie Cooper. You can see more of our work, including links to things we mentioned here by going to NBCNews.com slash why is this happening? Primary season is here. If you've got voting questions, we've got voting answers. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote. You'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote today.